At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. Good morning, my name is Pastor Joel. If you are new around here, and um, I especially want to say hi to those watching online. Um, Boy, that song was a great setup to where we will be this morning in Romans 7 as we wrap up our, our time in this newish series that we've been in. And I'm not going to lie to you, this is a challenging passage on a number of fronts. It's, um, we're going to get into some of that in a moment, but before we kind of dive in, it's always super helpful for me to remember the, the context and kind of where we've been and why is this letter even written to these believers in Rome? And so I want to summarize what I think Paul is trying to address here in this letter. And he's making a defense for the goodness of God's law, that God is righteous and that his law is good. And um, up to this point, he said some things that are interesting, even before uh, chapter 5, which we've been in chapters 5 through 7 if you're new to us in the series, but he said some things earlier in Romans that kind of trigger a little bit of a like, huh, what, what about the law? So, for example, in Romans 3.20, Paul wrote, through the law comes knowledge of sin, but by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And later in Romans 3, verse 28, he says, one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then he says in the next chapter, Romans 4, 15, the law brings wrath. So if these are, if these are actually true, then like, why, why do we have the law? What was the whole purpose of God giving the law in the first place? And it, it makes you wonder, is it actually for his people's good? Now, you and I may not think about the function of the Mosaic law on a daily basis. It's not, not the 2021 Christian experience is to, to think about, oh, how am I living according to the Mosaic law? But for the readers of this letter, it's another story. And the, the tension that's in the letter about these, like, oh, what's the purpose of God's law? You have to remember a little bit of audience and context and timing and all that stuff. And so, Consider the tension of the law and its purpose when you consider the Christians in Rome. So Paul wrote the letter to them and their specific circumstance in that time and place, but we have benefit from it. And so he was writing to them because some of the Jews had indeed put their faith in Jesus. They saw Jesus as the Messiah, and so they converted to believe in Jesus and to walk in the way of Jesus and then as they had witnessed before non-Jewish people, there were Gentile believers who were added to the church. And so for many of the Jewish believers who were sharing their faith with the Gentiles, these Jewish believers were still trying to figure out the, the new reality of, wait a minute, it's not the Mosaic law that we have to keep. It's, 
the whole new way forward and coming out of a culture that said it's all based on what you do and the law that you keep and what you, your identity as God's people based on these traditions. And so it's ultimately, Paul is arguing, it's not law and tradition and rules that saves you, but it's by having faith in Jesus that defines us as a people of God. Now, you also want to consider the context of this letter. During the reign of Emperor Claudius, another guy we don't think about on a regular basis, but Emperor Claudius ruled as a Roman emperor. And during that time, he expelled all the Jews from Rome. So they were gone, including Jewish Christians. Now, after he died, that order was rescinded. And so the Jews started coming back to Rome, including the Jewish Christians. Now, while the Jews had been gone... The Gentile believers continued faithfully to build the church. They lived. They shared their faith. They invited people into that. They flourished. And so the Gentile Christians had been leading the church in Rome, and all of a sudden the Jews come back. And so maybe you can appreciate that there would be a little bit of tension because the Jews who had converted and shared their faith to these Gentiles now are coming back, and it has a little bit of a different look and feel to it, doesn't it? So you can appreciate that Paul might be addressing some of the ethnic tension that was at work even within the church. Now, Paul likely had several things to address and motivations for writing this letter, which really is just quite a theological manifesto. I mean, it is like a thick, rich theology in the book of Romans if you studied it. But he was addressing specific things to them. And praise God by His grace, even though it was written to them, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're opening up God's Word, and we're receiving truths about God and about His story and redemption. And you know, you and I don't interact regularly with Old Testament law, but the gospel is so beautiful because there is a standard, and God set the standard, and God's standard is holiness. And God abhors sin. We know that throughout the pages of Scripture. And so we also know from our own experience, but also through the pages of Scripture, that no human can ultimately keep the law perfectly. That's why it took Jesus coming, which we have sung about, which we have learned about for every Sunday and every time we gather together, we learn and we look to the reality and the example of Jesus and why he had to come. And so like a lighthouse, you think about a lighthouse that's positioned on the, on the shoreline so that in the midst of the storm, ships that are coming can see this beacon of hope and they can see where they're supposed to go. That's the gospel to us, and it's juxtaposed against the dark reality of the human heart and the dark reality of a sinful, broken world, and it points out our inability to love God and to obey Him, but we have Jesus. I like how Pastor Tim Keller summarized Romans. He said, the gospel of God, which is a phrase from Romans 1.1, so at the very beginning of, of the book of Romans, the gospel of God was a declaration about God's righteousness. Paul shows us not only how God in the gospel makes sinners righteous, but also how this most precious gift of God is enjoyed in our lives, how it produces deep and massive changes in our behavior and even in our character, he writes. And this is what we've been exploring through Romans 5 through 7 in this series called Newish. And what we're trying to tease out is we're not new-ish, like, eh, kind of, sort of. No. Paul is showing us 
that when we come by faith into Jesus and to His family, we have a whole new reality. It isn't new-ish. It is new. And it's not about doing the right thing. It's not ascending to the right creed. It's not anything like that. But we embrace a whole new life of righteousness because of Jesus and because of the inworking power of the Holy Spirit that we have for those of us who are in Him. And so during our time these last several weeks, we're wrapping up our newest series today, Paul has been asking and addressing four questions. And I like, again, I'm going to use Tim Keller and his summary of these questions. At the beginning of chapter 6, Paul is answering the question, essentially, does the message of salvation by grace alone lead you to stay unchanged morally? No. Emphatically, no. The gospel gives you knowledge, so we use the analogy of baptism, and it gives you power. The gospel gives you power. And we saw that in the analogy of sin no longer being our boss. It doesn't get to tell us what to do anymore. The second question Paul was addressing in chapter 6, verse 15 is, does the gospel leave you free to live any way you choose? And the answer again is no. No, it isn't. You can either be a slave to sin or you can be a servant to God. Those are the two options for human existence, slave to sin or servant to God. And we saw last week the illustration of marriage, that you're either married to the law or you're married to Jesus. That was the illustration. And then today, as we're continuing in chapter 7, two questions. Is the law a bad thing? And is the law a killer? And so, Grab your Bible, your Bible app. There's one in front of you. I'd love for you to follow along. There's a lot of words in this chunk of Scripture that we're going to look at. So I'd love for you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 7, where he begins to address the question, is the law sinful? What then shall we say, verse 7, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul's question here is, if we're released from the law, that's not our reality, that's the old way, is the law bad? Now, you know what his answer is, because it's always been this emphatic no, and Pastor Jacob weeks ago gave us the Greek lesson. It says meganoia in Greek, which is megano. So that's Paul's emphatic no. And then he uh, expounds on this by describing the purpose of the law, which is to reveal sin. It's to define sin and reveal sin in us. And commentators, one of them has written that the, the law is kind of like the yardstick of, of sin, you know, we know what an inch is. We can get out our ruler, our tape measure, and we know what an inch is definitively because we have that standard. And in the same way, we know what sin is because of the law. Otherwise, it's just guesswork. I mean, morality is just a guessing game, and we get to define our own. 
which is a bit of what our culture is doing now. But we believe that the law that God has given is the standard, and it's not bad. But what's underneath the law, that is sin, is what's bad. Think of a, here's an analogy. Think of an alarm system in your house. So if you don't have one, let's pretend that you call an alarm company and you say, I want you to come out and I want you to install an alarm system in my house. You work through all the details and on the morning that the techs are supposed to come out and install it. You're terribly sick. You're up in bed, but you unlock the door and you call a neighbor and you say, listen, I, I, can't, I can't even get out of bed. I'm so sick. Would you please let the techs in? And so the technicians come in because your neighbor has let them in and your neighbor is intrigued. And so they follow the technicians around and they, oh, this is interesting. Okay, these doors and these windows. All right. So all of a sudden the neighbor learns how the alarm system works. And he kind of figures it out. And that gives him an idea, and it puts him in the ideal situation that at some point, he himself could rob the house because he has learned the system. And Paul is saying that like the alarm system, God's law is good. It's intended to keep your home safe, so to speak, flourishing and life and all that. But if you introduce an error into the system vis-a-vis an untrustworthy neighbor who wants to exploit you, then all of a sudden the system would work against you. It's not actually going to do for you what you thought it was. It's going to work against you. And so sin is like that untrustworthy neighbor. The alarm system actually makes it easier for the neighbor to exploit you, to rob you, just as the law makes it easier for sin to grow in you and to deceive you. Think about the example Paul gives, coveting. We know about coveting because it's the 10th commandment that's given when God's people leave Egypt and Moses has the tablets and reads it to the nation. So coveting is envy. It's it's wanting something that you don't have. And so Paul uses the example of coveting and that all of a sudden we know what coveting is because God tells us and it just produces all sorts of coveting in us. As soon as you say it, it produces it. Now think about this. Coveting, after all these nine commandments about things you do, things you don't do, so don't worship idols, worship God, don't kill, don't lie, keep a Sabbath day, all of these things, the way that you live, we come to the tenth one, coveting, which really is a heart issue. It's the only one that is really getting at the motivation of the heart. And so when Amazingly, this is the human heart and sin. When we're given a commandment not to do it, sin finds an opportunity. It seizes an opportunity, and it produces in us all sorts of covetousness. And now, interestingly, sin, this language of sin seizes an opportunity, kind of, it kind of gives us the idea that sin is like an apex predator that is just sitting there quietly, stealthily watching looking for an opportunity to strike, to get you, to gain the upper hand, to have mastery over you. That is sin. And that's why Christians are told to be watchful and self-controlled. 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, the devil with sin at his arsenal is like a roaring, prowling lion ready to devour. Sin always looks for the upper hand. 
Sin always looks to assert its independence. It's the declaration of independence of the human heart to say, no, thanks, God. I can run my life better than you can. I know the rules. And so the Apostle Paul continues because he knows that sin tricks us and deceives us. He's unpacked this. He continues, as we see in verse 9, giving a picture of life before Christ. Now, we live in a bit of spiritual ignorance before we're awakened in our, uh, in our mind spiritually. So many people think, okay, if I just live a good life, I'm going to be okay, right? Don't hurt people. Don't lie too much. Just, it's going to work out in the end if I, as long as I just live a pretty good life. And then Paul's describing here that uh, externally you may be okay, but internally at some point the commandment comes home to you and you have a, a realization by God's Spirit that like, uh-oh, I'm a lot worse off than I thought that I was. You have an awareness, a recognition of your sin and your heart and that there's no way that you can actually like perform to do better, to get better. But you think, I've got to do better. I've got to start following the rules. I know the right thing to do. I just need to do it. But that's not ultimately going to bring life because you can't muster the effort. It doesn't matter how self-determined you are. It doesn't matter that, you know, you, you can just hold it all together because you can't. That's what Paul's illustrating here. Sin finds its way. It deceives you. It produces in you all sorts of sin. It's just this ongoing struggle. Now, don't blame the rules. It's not God's fault. God's rules were meant for flourishing. He knew his creation best. He's good. He's holy. He's righteous. The problem is our sin that's continually at work to destroy us. As you read these verses, there's an interesting parallel between these verses and Adam and Eve's experience in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if Paul had them in mind when he wrote it, but if you think about it, Adam and Eve lived in a beautiful paradise. They had the best life. It was beautiful. They had fellowship with God. They flourished. It was just life as God intended it. And then the commandment came. As Paul says here, then the commandment came. And the one commandment, he gave them, God gave them one limiting commandment. Don't eat the fruit of that specific tree. Because if you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it will lead to your death. And ate they did, and it did lead eventually to their physical death, but it also led immediately to their spiritual death. There was a schism between Adam and Eve and the fellowship that they had with God, and it actually affected the whole relationship of creation. Now, the limiting command that God gave them not to eat was intended to perpetuate the flourishing life. It was meant to just continue this beautiful thing that they had, continue the fellowship. It's not like God was being a jerk face. Hey, let's withhold this just because I feel like being a jerk to them. That is not it at all. He knew he knew what was best for them. He knew what would continue the beautiful life that they had. That's why verse 10 says that the commandment was intended to bring life. But their response to the commandment, disobedience, brought death. And verse 11 is a picture of how sin through temptation, that crafty serpent, 
Sin seized an opportunity in Eve because she was deceived. She didn't speak the truth to the serpent. And so sin seized this opportunity and it came alive in her. And then Adam ate and sin seized an opportunity and sin came alive in him and eventually the entire cosmos. So the problem was not God's law, don't eat the fruit of that tree. The problem was sin. God's commandments are holy and righteous. They're for our good. They're for our flourishing. The problem was their sin, which led them to death. So is the law sinful? No. Sin is sinful. The law is good. He affirms that. So Paul's answered that question. He now moves on to the second question, which we see in verse 13. Is the law death? So look at verse 13 with me. He writes, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So did that which is good, so Paul's affirming, the law is good, bring death to me? No. Emphatically, no. Again, it was sin that brought death. And here we have one of the key, although counterintuitive, purposes of the law that's shown here, that sin might be shown to be sin and might become sinful beyond measure. What Paul is trying to communicate here is for us to see sin for what it truly is. And sin is utterly sinful. It brings death. It destroys. There's no way to paint it up and make it look good. It ultimately leads to death. And then we continue in verses 14 and following. And here... Here's where some of the challenge comes in. Because Paul is describing a battle that goes on within a person, almost like a civil war that's going on inside. And he uses I, the first-person language here. But what makes it difficult, both in English and in Greek, is that scholars are divided by who is he talking about? Who is the I in this part of the passage that we're trying to understand? And I'll seek to summarize just a few of the the views succinctly. One view is that this is Paul's experience before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was a devout Jew. He was a Pharisee. He, He was schooled well, and he was meticulous about following the law. That was his identity. He did it really, really well. And so one view is Paul's talking about himself before Christ. Another view that's somewhat similar is that this is just the general experience of someone before Christ, someone who is sold to sin, as it says here, someone who has no power to do what is good and right before a holy God. They're controlled by the flesh. Now, others have argued that Paul is speaking in the present, that this is, a, this is his experience of being a Christ follower. And he's being honest that he... He delights in God's law. He loves God's law, but he continues to sin. And this is the ongoing struggle of the Christian. And so these are kind of the three predominant views here. And so keep in mind these as I read, continuing in verse 14. Follow along with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So who is he writing about? Is he writing about his experience as a Christian or is it another Take out your notebooks. We're entering seminary lecture time. No, just kidding. We don't have time for a seminary lecture, nor can I definitively land the plane on that this morning. However, let me encourage you, bookmark this passage. If you've got a commentary or a resource at your disposal, this is a fascinating read. It's a fascinating study, maybe in your own time, whether it's this week or or in the future. But I, I encourage you to be challenged by who do we think Paul is referring to in this passage. However, what's being described here is clearly warring factions, right? There's a, almost a divergent, two divergent selves at work here, a bit of schizophrenia almost in the, in the way that he's describing what's in the mind and how we actually work. And so while I'm not fully sure who the I is in these verses, I can see this in my own experience. Can't you? I think we all feel the tension of seeking to try to live in the way of Jesus and yet not being able to do that, being continually assaulted by the flesh in the way that we live, the choices that we make, seeing the flesh continues to try to master us even though it doesn't have mastery. This is our human experience. And so you and I know, like we we can mentally ascend to areas of sin that could trip us up. We know the weak points of our journey. We know that we shouldn't give them room to grow, but despite this mental resolve, we can't stop ourselves oftentimes. There's this disconnect between our mind and our actions. I know it in my own life. You probably do too. That's why Paul is calling it out here. And it's not just that some people have that stronger moral resolve because everybody has a breaking point. Some point along the way, everybody breaks and can't just hold it all together and do all the right thing just because of their will. And those who do well by their sheer willpower are probably pretty rotten inside. I mean, look at the way that Jesus talked to the Pharisees. Externally, woo, they're doing everything right. They're just following the law to the nth degree. But he always spoke to their heart, and their heart was pretty rotten. So maybe like I have in my experience, this is your story too. Your inner person, your mind, delights in God's law. But your members, that is to say your your body and the faculties that you have at your disposal, the way that you live your life is a different story. And at 
allows sin to work into you and to have its way and to deceive you and to trip you up and almost makes you captive to the law of sin. Look at the last part of verse 25. He says, So then, I myself served the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here's that all-out civil war that goes on in a person that's pretty desperate, that's pretty hopeless and powerless and wretched. Jump one verse back to 24 where he says, look at this agonizing cry. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is his recognition that the law can't deliver him. It is what Paul had put his hope in as a Jew. He put his hope in the law. It's what the people of God, the Jews, Israel, had put their hope in, that if we follow God's commands, we'll be his people, he'll bless us, there will be eternal reward for us. It's also what every religious person throughout history has trusted for deliverance, some creed, some dogma, something that they just hook onto that says, yeah, 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 that's going to be, that's my way out, that's my deliverance. It's also what every secular, irreligious person has trusted for deliverance. Their autonomy, their declaration of independence becomes a law to themselves. That's the way that they live. Paul is saying here, the result is always the same. Sin looks for an opportunity. It rears its ugly head. Whatever your law, sin is going to pounce. It's going to be like a parasite that just hooks onto it and starts to eat it away and ultimately make you wretched. Wretched man that I am, Paul writes. You're always going to end up with a civil war in your heart. But there's not a cliffhanger that I'm going to leave you on this morning. Because look, deliverance. Look at hope in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. It's not a principle. It's a person. Only a person can deliver you. That person is one and only Jesus, the promised one, the Son of God. And what Paul is conveying here is where the law fails. It will always fail because of sin. Where the law fails, Christ prevails. He does. Allow me to share some closing thoughts and perspective this morning. I I admit this is a weighty and heavy passage. Trust me, I've lived with it for the last week and a half. It's not a flippant, feel-good, man, thanks for that encouragement, Pastor. Let me just go on my way. Have a great week. It's not that. It's not that kind of passage. And to be honest, we're supposed to feel this way. We're supposed to feel the weight and the ugliness of our sin. It's It's what we get when we look at a holy God. We see our sin. We see how we don't measure up. We can see ourselves here in what Paul has been writing. This is our experience as well. But there is a grace to knowing what's true. There is. There's a grace to knowing, to have a clear picture and an understanding of reality. 
Allie and I were talking this week about this passage over lunch, and she gave me permission. She, she reminded me of this time before we were married. She lived in downtown Chicago and worked at the Moody Bible Institute. And her role there was overseeing and, and helping to disciple the women who lived on campus. And so in those early number of months that she was at Moody, she would frequent the campus coffee shop and sit down and have conversation with young women. And her drink of choice back in those days was a caramel macchiato. I don't know who likes a caramel macchiato, but yeah, thank you. But she realized at some point, ooh, I think I'm putting on a few extra pounds. Like I, I put on a little bit of weight. And she mentioned this to a friend of hers who is a good friend, you know, you can be honest with those. And, and she responded to Allie and said, well, yeah. What do you think is in a caramel macchiato? Like, you're, you're having two or three of these a week? Spoiler alert, it's whole milk, sugar, coffee, more sugar, and then whipped cream on top. So, you know, the caloric value is not, it's not great. But Allie described like, oh, I'm so bummed because I really like it. It makes me feel good. I like to drink caramel macchiatos, but because she had insight into what's actually in a caramel macchiato, she began limiting her consumption of said sugary coffee drinks, right? So in a similar way, there is grace in knowing the truth about our sin. There's grace and honesty about how bad we are, our sin, and that it's ugly and that it seeks to deceive us and to break us, lead us to a really bad place. But remember, Romans 6 reminds us it's not our boss. There's going to be this civil war, this battle, but it's not our boss because we've been set free. So I think we can identify with the civil war that Paul wrote about. And I've been a Christian long enough to know that the white-knuckled, I'm just going to do better. I can do it. It doesn't work. I've tried. I'm just not that strong. These verses are dense and heavy, and they're meant to be, because Romans 8 is coming. And when we jump into that for weeks, we're going to be in there for five, six, seven weeks here soon. We're supposed to feel this glimpses of hope, and yet oh, we still live in this place with sin and this back and forth. But we keep coming back to the heaviness of living in the law because it's meant to stir something in our hearts and souls that it's going to be beautiful once we get to the reality of Romans 8. So there's a warning here. The warning is don't stop seeing your sin. Sin is utterly sinful from God's perspective. And if you think you're pretty good, like you got it pretty good figured out, beware. Because sin is on the prowl. It's looking for an opportunity to strike and to deceive you and to destroy you. At the same time, when we are faced with our sin, we're not carrying around guilt and shame because we've been set free. 
you know you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's why you have the cross. So when we sit with the weightiness of our sin, it pushes us to the cross. It pushes us to Jesus. Always see what he did. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why we come every Sunday. We sing these songs. We remind ourselves of the truth. We remind ourselves of our identity. That's why we get in the good book each and every day throughout the week to change the view that we have of ourselves and our world. And the more holy we become, which, by the way, is God's plan for us, that's sanctification, the process of becoming more like God himself. The more holy we become, the more we ought to be aware of and mourn the unholiness that remains within us. And so we can be honest about that reality. And we can take great comfort that in the fact that Jesus has forgiven us. It's his righteousness that we've been given, not based on how well we keep the rules. And as Romans 8, I won't steal the thunder from Pastor Jacob, but as Romans 8 reminds us, we're not condemned. That would have been a really good place for an amen or praise the Lord. We're not condemned. That's not our story. We're going to jump into how we live in the Spirit of God how it changes. That it's not just this hopeful, aspirational thing, but it's actually something that we're given to change our stories now. So run to Jesus. Run to him. When you rebel, when you stumble, run to him. There's grace for you. There's power for you. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Is available to believers. And when you do, when you stumble and when you exclaim, or when you reach on to that grace, you exclaim like verse 25, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if today you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, run to Jesus for deliverance. That is your answer. Regardless of a background or religious experience or interest, think you can identify with the same struggle that goes on within the heart of this person that Paul's writing about. And if you're honest, despite how great you look on the outside, how you project, you've likely felt hopeless and exhausted and worn down. Maybe you don't believe that you can change or that someone can actually change. And so you've tried diets, you've tried relationships, you've tried jobs, you've tried all sorts of things to like hook on, like, oh, maybe this will be the thing that just sets me free. Maybe this is the thing where I'll actually feel good about life. But inwardly, you're crumbling. You are wretched, as Paul writes here, wretched man or woman that I am. Who, who can deliver me from this? This is exhausting. Jesus. Run to Jesus for deliverance and life. And so, Jesus, we lift up our voice to you. We recognize that you are true and good and merciful and just and gracious. We trust that you have our best in mind, even as we recognize the beauty of the cross and the reality of the sin that still is in our hearts. Pray that this morning would be 
a bit of a wake up by your Holy Spirit that we would see our sin for what it is, be grieved by it, recognize we've got to put a bullet in the head of the apex predator of sin that is coming after us. But there's grace and there's life for us because of Jesus and his righteousness. And so, God, we we want to inwardly and externally delight in your law and in your ways and we need your help. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that we have new stories because of what you do in our hearts and in our lives. And I pray that that would even be the case today for some, that we would not just be hearers of the word, as James says, but we would be doers by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.